Welcome to the Disgruntled Rats podcast on Android development. Welcome to the Disgruntled Rats podcast for April 14th, 2011. My name is Michael Boldishar. I'm Brian Morgan. My name is Sean Godinez. And we're going to start off today with an introduction here, uh, which is some life updates, and we're going to have a question of the day, just to get rolling. First, uh, I'll start with life update. Life updates. Nothing new in my life. Uh, <laughs> went to the Twin Cities Jug for the first time with Sean this week on Thursday, and that was interesting. They talked about uh, Android hooking up to business systems and service-oriented architectures. Other than that, I've just been doing a little bit of gaming and a little bit of uh, programming. Uh, Maybe you could take it over, Brian? Sure. So uh, my life updates, I'm going to Germany on Sunday for three weeks. Um, I wish it was a personal trip. I've been there once before, and it was just, I don't know, uh, hard to describe how beautiful it is this time of year. But uh, I'm going for um, military, unfortunately, so we've worked in 12-hour days and won't be able to even drink any beer, so it's kind of bittersweet. Yeah, it's a a dying shame, but that's okay. So that's my biggest life update. Um, Sean? Uh, I just got back from a week in California. I was out there with Lockheed demonstrating new UAV technology to the UK with a small Dodger Hawk 3. It was was pretty interesting. It was a good time. Got to see some... I had some extra time, so... After the demos, we went out and had a had some drinks, maybe a couple too many, and I uh, kept the party going until uh, we ended up in San Francisco and <laughs> had to drive back to uh, San Jose to fly out. So it was, it was nice. a good time. Cool. Very cool, Sean. All right, the next question is, what would you do if you lived in the world of Warcraft? Hmm. And my answer is, I would fish all day long. <laughs> <laughs> until a horde came up and killed you. <laughs> right, <laughs> and then I would quit fishing, I guess, and take up a different profession. How about you, Brian? Well, um, let's see. I'd probably be the little guy who sits on the boat that goes around between Kalimdor uh, and uh, the Eastern Islands. I think that'd be fun, just to ride on a boat all day. I mean, nobody else could fly out there, so I don't have to worry about getting uh, PK'd. I just essentially, <laughs> would just ride on the boat all day and you know get a tan. <laughs> I, th- I think I would uh, strap my epics around Orgrimmar or jump on up and down on top of a bank somewhere. There's hours on end. This bounce. <laughs> <laughs> Spamming. Uh, go to this website to buy gold. Uh, I say that for my lower level one characters. Just randomly create. <laughs> awesome. Very nice, guys. Uh, okay, we're going to start off with some announcements here. The Disgruntled Rats, we're planning on doing a presentation in the Twin Cities at the the Java user group sometime this summer on Android and OpenGL. We hope that we're going to have a larger turnout uh, this year. We don't know who, what to expect, but if you're in the area and you love computer graphics, you're welcome to join us. We're going to go through some tutorials and talk about some of our experiences with uh, OpenGL ES and some of the pitfalls. So it'll be an interesting presentation. We're going to do it as a trio. Uh, I don't know if this has ever been attempted at the Java user group, but it's we're going to pull it off. You bet. Okay. I, Let's go into computer graphics and start with the news. Okay, Ryan's so... Ryan's going to uh, take over. Yep, I'm going to hit it up here. We're talking about the NVIDIA Apex 
Um, SDK beta has been released. So uh, the Apex is a dynamics framework, and it's targeted um, this time toward artists rather than physics experts. So essentially, it puts a lot of the the hard um, programming aside and allows for complex systems to be created without doing any of that hard programming. So it's got three modules. It's got clothing, um, destruction, and particles. And some of the features of that is high-level interface for artists and content developers. Um, the, you can bypass the bottleneck of the game uh, engines by you can by sending the data directly to the renderer. So that's awesome. And then uh, it's easy to scale content from minimum system requirements to uh, high-powered gaming machines. So you've got the whole wide range of old-school to you know next-generation equipment covered in there. Um, we've got a couple of videos on uh, the, our links here to YouTube. Um, the clothing video is really cool. So uh, if you get a chance, check out our notes and take a look at that. Yeah, I was really impressed by that video of the clothing. Um, not only the girl, but the actual dress and, and walking upstairs and just looks so realistic. I've never seen that type of uh, clothing material movement in a game before, so I can't wait to see what they're going to be able to do in 10 years with video games. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. The, uh, you know, thinking back 10 years and how uh, all this stuff is, um, you know, it's it's all sort of, uh, it's not a linear curve in terms of progression of all this technology, so in 10 years from now it's going to be like, I don't know, it's going to be ridiculous with the 3D technology and all these new um, programming things they're putting out, it's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, one of the interesting things about this SDK is that it it's made for NVIDIA, but if you don't have an NVIDIA card, it runs all the processing power on your CPU instead. So, <laughs> sort of a slap in the face for the other ATI, saying that even though you have a card, you can't use it for this processing. It does some CUDA and uh, some other interesting things, so... Uh, Kind of excited about that. Sweet. Yeah. Uh, other news: there, uh, Nvidia is announcing their new GTX 590 three gigabit card. Basically, it slaps two uh, GTX 580 chips onto one card, and you have to clock it down a little bit to just keep it within a certain temperature range. And in doing so, they lose they lose some of the processing power that they, I'm sure they would want to compete with Radeon's HD 6990 which is their flagship. And uh, off of Tom's hardware article, they, they ran some ten sh- uh, test benches and they show um, their performance against each other. And it looks like the 6990 is still outperforming GTX's latest re- NVIDIA's latest release of the GTX 590. Uh, but at the end of the article, it's kind of funny. They still claim the winner is NVIDIA, and that's only because NVIDIA's latest card is a lot quieter than Radeon's card, which in my opinion doesn't mean anything. I think you should just turn your game up a little louder or uh, put some headphones on. It's all about the performance, in my opinion. Oh, that sounds like a pretty biased article. I know. That's, <laughs> what, that's what I was thinking as well. There's uh, some details on there about the amount of teraflops. Uh, the Radeon's flagship puts out 5.1 versus uh, NVIDIA's is only 2.49. There's a huge difference in the amount of computational power there. Uh, one thing nice about NVIDIA's latest card is it does have uh, 1,024 CUDA cores, 
and, and of course CUDA is NVIDIA's API, so if you're interested in that, that's definitely something that would sway you more towards that direction. But um, you could just, in the end, buy two Radeon 6970s or two GTX 570s and come out at the same price range and probably have better all, uh, overall better performance than the single card. Definitely less uh, power. Or, I don't know. Actually, I don't know about the power, maybe, but um, overall better performance in that going that route. What's the? Uh, do you know what the price range is of the 590? Uh, ATI Radeon 6990 is at 700, and Newegg priced their GTX is the GTX 590 at uh, $700, but they're they're out of stock as they they're claimed to be out of stock right now. So. Yeah, and that's normally how those new cards are. They they I think they do that on purpose to be honest to drive up the demand and lower the supply. Because I, when I when I got back from my tour, I uh, I bought that um, 5970 HD, and there was like I swear to God, I spent three weeks trying to find one on the internet that was available <laughs> and I, I watched the price go up daily like oh yeah you know yeah it, it went from like 600 to 700 i finally ended up getting one for like 760 Jeez. and yeah i know it's crazy so i don't know if they do that on purpose <laughs> or what but well you can speak to the uh running two gtx 570s and sli right? yeah yeah i can definitely do that because i got that running right now um it runs pretty pretty darn great, as far as I can tell. I was playing Battlefield 2, Bad Company, uh, and using my 3D setup um, the other day with full everything. And it was, uh, you know, it, it, the funny thing is it takes a couple seconds um, to kind of render the scene initially. But then once it gets all that, uh, all the shaders loaded and everything like that, it very uh, it, it runs really smooth. And you can't even tell that, you know, there's any lag at all. So, no latency. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, yeah, I, I'm yeah. always an NVIDIA fan, personally, God just it. because it runs better on Linux than um, ATI does, but yeah, that's just my experience. I imagine they have a little more support. It seems like there's a little larger community behind NVIDIA. NVIDIA probably has the, the money to put behind um, making drivers for Linux as well. Yep, I can download a driver off their website and install it. It just works out of the box. Okay, we'll move on to more news. Intel chips are coming to Android tablets. On April 11th, Intel shipped Atom processors that were designed for tablets. These processors are named Oak Trail. They were designed for Windows 7 and Honeycomb. Android has been working with Google to verify these chips are compatible with Android. Uh, the chip is actually runs at 1.5 gigahertz, but the question is, how are they going to compete with the dual-core chips that are already coming out from other manufacturers? Uh, are they too late to market to make a difference in this case? Uh, what do you guys think? Jeez, you know, <clears throat> that's a good question. Um, they were designed for Windows 7 and Honeycomb, but they're going to push up the Android tablet. You know, I think it's going to make an impact, a uh, pretty large impact. I, I think it's going to I think it's going to compete pretty well with the dual-core models. Um, you know, Intel is, I think, kind of broken away a little bit in the processor market, at least from what I have been tracking uh, from my personal experience. I'm a little biased right now, though, because I'm running an i7. So, um, I don't know. I think I think they're going to compete just fine. Sean? That's, uh, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens there. I guess I think the Tegra 2 is uh, one of the dual-cores that maybe they're 
they're comparing the, their performance against in the tablet market. And that'd be interesting to see how one performs against the other. So I don't know. I think I'm kind of on the on the fence as to which one I predict will come out ahead. I imagine since Intel has been working specifically for these, uh, and they're going to have the latest come out at a later date, as Red Tiger Two was released quite a while ago. I think they they probably will have a leg up there. Just that aspect alone. Yeah, that article was written on Fandroid.com by Kevin Krause. Uh, personally, I think that they're too late to the market, and ARM chips are so cheap these days that Intel can't compete with those guys. So, I don't know. I personally think they're they're not going to be able to uh, to compete. But we'll go on to the next news item. Um, anti-aliasing analysis. There's a great article on Tom's Hardware about this. And if you don't know much about anti-aliasing, or if you don't know a lot about the differences between how NVIDIA and ATI handle uh, anti-aliasing, uh, I recommend checking it out. They go into depth about super sampling, which is basically where you you render to an image that's much greater than your actual resolution of your screen size, and you downsample to your screen resolution. So if you have 4x super sampling, you're going to be rendering an image that's four times the size of your screen, and then uh, averaging the pixels, four pixels per your screen, per each pixel on your screen. And they also go in depth about uh, multi-sampling and the various um, additional uh, functionality you can add to the multi-sampling. The multi-sampling basically, it uses the depth buffer to detect edges. So if there's a, if there's a, a, um, a triangle or something, some kind of uh, mesh that's closer to the screen, and then uh, at the very edges around that mesh, you'll notice that in the depth buffer that the, the changes in depth will be drastic. And so you can tell there's an edge there, and you'll be able to, uh, what multi-sampling does, then it, it samples for a single pixel, like multiple rays. It'll take that single pixel and it'll like, detect uh, various parts of that pixel to see what the average color is on that pixel. So it's a little bit faster. Super sampling takes a lot more time, because you're rendering you know, four times or eight times the size of your actual resolution. Whereas multi-sampling just basically goes along the edges and tries to super sample uh, pixels that are along those edge. The downside of multi-sampling is that it uh, does not work very well with uh, transparent texture. So if you have like a chain link fence, it's very easy to just make a transparent texture of that chain link fencing. And uh, instead of actually doing the polygons that it would take to create a cha- an actual chain link fence, I would, uh, it's much faster just to do a, an, a transparent texture of that. But with multi-sampling, you're only, again, you're only using the depth buffer, so you have you only sampling along the edges of that chain link fence in the middle is just going to be that texture displayed. So there's still a lot of aliasing going on there. Whereas super sampling, you wouldn't have that problem at all. But anyway, I recommend checking out the article on Tom's Hardware. The link will be listed. Cool. Oh, that's really neat. I don't know a lot about anti-aliasing, but what uh, approaches do most games take? I mean, is it that they have to implement both types of anti-aliasing for different situations? Because all the games I play these days have chain link fences in them. Right. There's uh, It's kind of all handled on the GPU, so it's it's part of the API. Not, I don't know that very many game developers actually compute anti-aliasing on the CPU or in, in a user space. So they, it's all done handled by dedicated hardware. 
on uh, on graphics cards, and usually you access that. You, you set the the aliasing you want through the API, whether it's DirectX or Direct3D or OpenGL. So you don't have to worry too much about it. But the article goes into some interesting features or interesting things that you wouldn't expect based on NVIDIA's implementation of anti-aliasing and ATI's implementation of it. So it's pretty good stuff. Very okay. cool. Cool. Thanks, Sean. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian, you're up next. Okay. With, uh, yeah, you go ahead. <laughs> yep. So we're going to be talking about the uh, the Amazon Android simulator. This is really cool. If you uh, if you are at all interested in testing products uh, before you buy them, um, so Amazon recently opened their own app store. We heard about that. So they also released a product called Test Drive, and Test Drive allows users to test their Android applications on an uh, Android virtual machine before you purchase them. And the interface to test the programs is all web-based. So it runs a Flash application that communicates with services in the uh, Amazon cloud. And uh, you can test your uh, your Android apps before you buy them. So that's pretty cool. You know, um, I don't own an Android phone myself. I use an iPhone. But, I mean, even the iPhone, you don't have a chance to test it. The best thing you have is your uh, your screenshots of what the game is like or what the app is like and then a, you know obviously a very biased marketing re- and spiel and then some reviews so the ability for people to actually test drive these things before playing them I think is invaluable and it's really cool good idea um, yeah. yeah that's great I like that idea yeah I think that's gonna be uh it's gonna be a, a big a big boon for Amazon's App Store. So, uh, Sean, we should got to give the props to Sean Hollister at uh, ngadget.com for uh, writing an article on that. We got the link in our notes if you want to check them out, too. Yeah, I guess, though, the question that I have is, do you always go to your computer to look at things before you buy an app? Like, when I buy an app on my phone, I usually just look at the market and buy it there. You know, it's like an instant reaction to seeing what I need. I don't know how many people are going to go out to the web and navigate to Amazon, try it out in the simulator. Um, the one thing that it does do for developers is it allows people to, well, it should allow people to test it out before they buy it because what they don't want is people returning these applications and giving people bad ratings for no reason. Right. As you return applications, that brings your, your rating down. So it sounds like they're trying to solve a problem. Uh, I don't know if this is the answer Um it's kind of neat, though. Yeah, I think it's kind of a win-win for both. You get, the developers get that side of it, but then the customers that are picky, the customers don't, I don't know, just don't go out and buy apps um, spontaneously. They're going to want, I think it would be incredibly helpful for them who want to go out there and test run an app first. Like, I'm, I'm the type of person that will read through as many reviews as I can stand just to try and get a general feel of how the application was developed and how well it, it is. And then if, if I had this additional feature, I can actually go out and try it for some I'm going to be one of those guys to sign up for it right away and try it out. Yeah, it probably depends on the cost of the app, too. If it's a dollar, then you're not going to spend much time worrying about it. But if you're buying a GPS navigation system for 50 bucks right. or whatever, lake maps or something, right. then you're probably going to want to spend a little time researching it, and that sounds pretty neat. That brings up yeah. an interesting point, too. You made uh, GPS apps apps that rely on inertial um, sensors. The, if, if that's all running on a simulator... It's not going to do a whole lot for you to like be flipping your phone side to side or to use it to move someplace because you won't see any of the effects that are needed there. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if it handles those cases. If anybody from Amazon is listening to our show, why don't you uh, send us an email and tell us a few of the features and maybe how Amazon has addressed uh, all these extra hardware devices. 
Yeah, and if they don't know, maybe that's the next generation of these uh, online testing suites is they have sort of a 3D plane where you have somebody with a virtual hand, you know, virtually move the device around and then maybe incorporate some of the inertial devices in that. That'd be pretty cool. Maybe we should develop something like that. There we go. <laughs> okay, we'll go on to the next next article here. Uh, the title is Android Becoming Not So Open Source. Google has decided not to release the source code for their Android operating system. Um, basically, this operating system is their tablet OS. They've been developing phone operating systems for a while, but now uh, they have the Zoom out there, and everybody's trying to get the, the code and get their devices deployed and working and sold to customers. Uh, lots of companies already depend on Google for early access to the code. Google actually started by selling in, or giving away Android as an open source platform, but now they're changing tactics a little bit. They have a lot of momentum, and they're being very picky about who they form partnerships with. Google <clears throat> has been choosing uh, one product for initial release for every Android version. So we had the Zoom, we had, uh, I believe, I don't remember, the uh, original phone that they developed um, and some other initial releases for each operating system. But the big questions are, you know, is Google growing up? Are they becoming Microsoft? Are they taking some of this stuff too far? Uh, I know Apple's very, you know, locked down, and they're completely opposite from what it seems that Google is with their devices. Uh, Google has always said they're going to be open source and give back to the community, but there's a lot of fragmentation in the market right now. All these device manufacturers, they just take Google stuff and do whatever they want with it. And I think it's becoming an issue. Uh, there's a point in a later article that we can bring up uh, some some problems with testing on multiple devices. So when we get there, we'll talk about that. The, uh, the article was written by Ashley Vance and Peter Burrows of businessweek.com. You guys have any thoughts on uh, Android and open source? I think you're right, Mike. You know, Google established their company based on that open source methodology, and I think their uh, their tagline, or at least their corporate tagline, inter office is "Don't be evil." <laughs> you know, that's kind of a testament to their uh, anti sort of Microsoft um, campaigns and the fact that they believe that you know big corporations are inherently evil by their need to keep everything close hold. So. You know, the fact that maybe they're starting to go that way is, I don't know, maybe indicative of future Google. We'll see. Yeah, I guess as a developer, I, I don't want there to be issues with multiple platforms and testing on multiple devices. So if they can solve that problem, I think that's got to be the most important problem for them to solve. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, that and if as it, well. If it takes doing this, then that's great because, you know, they're going to have so many issues when I'm deploying my application to various platforms. Uh, it's going to be a, it might be a bit of a nightmare. Well, that's one of the major reasons Unreal is not releasing their game engine for mobile applications. That They're only staying with iPhone because iPhone has hardware releases annually and they, they have a it's not as easy or open as uh, Google has been. And maybe, I don't know if Google needs to go this far but I, I could see them I, in, in installing rules or more regulations on how uh, hardware requirements are so for certain OSs. So that way developers have an easier time deploying their, their software in a way that they and getting the results that they expect out of it. 
should mention that Google does plan to eventually release the source code, but they want to make it better before they do. That's what they say. So okay. just don't want to get any hate mail. <laughs> cool. All right. Moving on. All right, so Sony's got the boot from the Google market. A Sony PlayStation emulator was removed from the Android market because Google cited a violation of the policies as the reason. People were suggesting that this has more to do with the launch of Sony's new gaming device based on Android, Xperia. Other, emulates, emu, other emulators are still available on the Android market, such as SNESOID and Gameboyd. So it's... Um, I don't know, I'm not sure what Google is afraid of here, or if this is a behavior part of a business shift. Hmm, yeah. It's pretty interesting that they left uh, the Super Nintendo and Game Boy emulators on, but removed the PlayStation emulator. As a former PlayStation owner uh, in my youth, in my prime gaming days, you know, uh, I think the PlayStation emulator is probably used to this day quite a bit. So I'm sad to see it go. But uh, as far as the underlying uh, reasons, I'm not sure. Maybe the Sony execs and uh, Google execs got together and couldn't come to terms, or you know, said, "Hey, we uh, we own this." proprietary emulator and you guys got to remove it I don't know hmm. anybody has any information on that yeah it's just interesting that you know Sony developed this emulator for playing old PlayStation games on on the Android they developed hardware for it and you know wh- why doesn't Google want that in their market um, do they have something that's going to compete with this product in the future? Are they building their own game system? That's the only thing that I can think of. I mean, Microsoft built their own game system. Uh, Nintendo's doing game systems. W- you know, what if Google is building a, a game system for, for Android and they're, they want to um, shut down Sony early? That's my only thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good insight. Could be. This article reminded me of another article I read, um, it, which is not nearly as um, conflicting major companies but they they are making a handheld Super Nintendo that takes the old Super Nintendo cartridges they're calling it the Super Boy and it's, uh, you try, get these gigantic cartridges you're putting in this little handheld and it, it looks it actually looks like the Super Nintendo controller itself it's pretty cool and that's that's also found that on Tom's hardware but I'll, I'll have to post a link to that yeah it's pretty neat that's funny yeah you should share that yeah, so I'd like to be. I'd like to hear what the actual um, violations were when they outlined. The guild dig a little deeper into that because you know there's lots of violations to, or lots of policies to violate. But I'd like to see what policies were actually violated. Yeah, they didn't say. So if anybody has any information on that and that's listening, please shoot us a line and let us know. We'll cover it again next week, maybe then. Okay, I think we're ready for the next segment. We're going into 3D modeling, which we have a total of one article this week on 3D modeling. And this is also related to Android. So Autodesk, which is uh, AutoCAD's product for Android, is coming out. There's been a version for iOS for some time. The Android version will have limited capabilities compared to the real AutoCAD. Uh, the ability to open CAD files, perform basic edits, and save CAD files. The interesting tidbit from this is that the developers of this platform had to test across 15 different Android devices and make Jeez. minor changes for each of them. Painful. 
And, you know, this isn't really what Google envisioned when they built the platform, uh, that you'd have to do all this testing. And they were doing a lot of things with touchscreens and and moving around objects in 3D with touchscreens, so that was part of it. Uh, but I, all I know is from AutoCAD is I used to draw donuts as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> and the article was written by Cameron Summerson from AndroidPolice.com. Cool. You guys, yeah, probably not much to say on that, but if you... I think that'd be very helpful any... for uh, anything you can open up on your phone. is increases your productivity, or if you're you know, on in an airplane and you want to keep looking at some models or whatever, someone sends you some files, I think it's a great great thing to do. Great. Glad they ported it to Android. Yep. That's what I was thinking, too, in the airport, you know, a developer, designer, packaging designer gets a... CAD file, you can open it, review it, maybe do some basic edits, like you said, and then save it and send it back. Doesn't have to whip out his laptop, doesn't have to go to a charging station, doesn't have to connect to the internet, because he's got it all on his phone. So I think that for the, the people that use CAD, <clears throat> you know, significantly, I think this is probably going to be good for them, push them towards the Android market. Okay. Right, right. Cool. Okay, so we're going to go into gaming now. Okay. Brian? Sounds good. Covering gaming, going uh, right away to what's on everybody's mind. I keep seeing billboards for it as I drive to work every day, so I know it's coming out soon. Portal 2 <laughs> might be coming out sooner than you think, ladies and gentlemen. Um, by the time you're listening to this podcast, it, uh, it may be unlocked in your Steam account already. Uh, the official scheduled release is for April 19th, but there's uh, evidence on the inner tubes that it might be released on uh, 15th of April, so just a few days. Um, so there's hidden clues in the Potato Sack bundle from Steam. The Potato Sack is a bundle of indie games on Steam that's currently sold at a discounted price. Um, and there's also going to be interesting clues, or there have been interesting clues sent to various websites. Uh, one example is, uh, one t- clue that was sent to a website is, I'm going to need a lot more test subjects to move forward, waiting and expecting immediate compliance. So, I'm not sure exactly what that means, but pretty interesting. (laughs) Anybody else want to comment on the... I mean, we're all expecting Portal 2, ads for it on TV every night, billboards for it. I mean, is this the next coming of the Messiah, or is this another game? I mean, it's hard to tell sometimes. (laughs) I haven't seen a game advertised on a billboard, uh, not that I can remember anyway. And I remember driving through... Even in California last week, there was billboards for it, and I remember driving through Twin Cities here and seeing billboards. I hadn't seen that before. Yeah, that's quite a sparse uh, amount of landscape, too. (laughs) So, you know, it's probably a very national campaign. (laughs) I've seen multiple billboards for this game, not just one in the cities, but it seemed like major billboards around the Twin Cities had Portal 2 on them. So (laughs) lots of marketing going on, a lot of hype being built up for this. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought Portal 1 was pretty good, though. I enjoyed that, so I'm looking forward to Portal 2 as well. I'm going to check my Steam account later tonight. Hmm, yes. Oh, you, <laughs> you don't go to work tomorrow, we'll know why. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the next game uh, I, I'm excited about that's coming out here uh, is The Witcher 2, Assassins of Kings. I played through a lot of The Witcher 1. I, I Unfortunately, I haven't finished it yet. I'm still playing through it. It's just such a massive game. But there's a lot of things that uh, were... I found annoying to me, and it looks like they're taking care of that in in The Witcher 2 here. They've done a lot of overhauling. Uh, they come they went down from the 
<laughs> seven like, bajillion loading screens that they had. They're just loading screen after loading screen, down to just four loading screens throughout the entire game, which I think is awesome. Uh, they have 16 different endings and three different game openings. So the opening, you're going to kind of do a little bit of a game tutorial as well as find out what kind of style of play you prefer, and that will direct you towards one of the openings into the game. Like, if you're going to be more of, like, uh, a melee or, or a sneak, uh, not a sneak, but, like, a rogue type sneaking around in the background. And that's, uh, and I'm excited for it. It looks great. It looks good. Awesome. Yeah, that'll you're be coming talking. out. Sorry, I was going to say that. It's going to come out May 17th is the projected date. Good. So is this version as controversial as the first one? I know that <laughs> there were different versions of the first one floating around, and there were, uh... Suggestions by people to go purchase a certain version. Well, I, you know, talk about controversy. I, I heard uh, from an article I read. I don't know when um, about The Witcher Two, but I guess in the first five to ten minutes of the opening sequence, uh, there's some fellatio performed, <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's pretty you know 99% visible all but the goods. So you know that I think that's in traditional Witcher fashion. Um, whoever develops that game obviously has. Uh, Got a certain penchant for things controversial. Um, if you played the first one, you know exactly what we're talking about. So I well, think that's, that's good in a sense. Go ahead. Try. Yeah, I like the uh, the maturity level is brought up a bit. It's like it's mm-hmm. an adult game, so they don't try and hold back at all, and they try and um, just make it as interesting as possible. I don't know if they go overly inappropriate. Uh, although what you just described sounded, <laughs> <laughs> it might have went there. I don't know, but. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Uh, Got to get the right texture pack. Yeah. Right. That, you might have taken that out of context. I don't know. Maybe it was more appropriate than you described. But, uh, there was... Uh, I, did, I did notice on GameSpot, I was looking through this some of the articles, and on the side tab bar, they had like, like the highest rated or the most viewed images. And, of course, they were just the images of the women with gigantic boobs and <laughs> scantily clad. <laughs> like, yeah. Of course. Yeah. They, they know what market they're appealing to. Right, right cool very cool you guys ready to move on sure yes okay okay there's a article out there that says that gaming is the most popular use for tablets uh, it's from a guardian games blog and games well pulled the story off of slash dot but look in the show notes for more information uh, basically there's a breakdown of usage on tablets and these percentages that I'm going to give you don't add up to 100% because it just means that, uh, <laughs> sorry, <clears throat> somebody's typing in our Google Docs document, uh, the actual uses for tablets, <laughs> 80, 84% of tablets, tablet users game on them, 78% use them for searching, 74% for emailing. 61% for reading news, 56% for social networking, 51% for music and media, and 46% for ebooks. So I think what that's saying is that the other, uh, you know, percentage that's not listed there is the percentage of people that aren't using it for that. So, for instance, uh, what do we have? About 16% of people aren't using it for gaming, hmm. and. Other interesting statistics are that 38% of tablet owners use the device for more than two hours a day, and 30% of 
tablet owners use the device for one to two hours a day. So that's 68% of the people who own tablets use the device for more than one hour a day. That's that's really shocking to me, at least, because I thought that people were buying these tablets and not really using them as much. Uh, but to find out that they're actually on the devices for that much for at least an hour a day, that's surprising to me. I think they it's like a gym membership. Like, you buy it and you feel inclined to use it, even if you don't have any real desire to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Must play Angry Birds. <laughs> yeah, I paid a dollar for it. I have to play it. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, be, it's it's oh, they're pretty ahead. popular devices, I guess. I my mom was talking about getting one, and uh, I'm sure she would use it all the time. So she uses she's on her laptop all the time. So I imagine it's pretty true statistic, or realistic. Yeah, being that being that app the iPad is the biggest seller right now. Um, I wonder if these statistics are going to change over time, and what Android users are going to bring, what their daily tasks are going to be. And I was really surprised that only 46% of people used it for books. For ebooks, um, I expected that people would buy these things to read ebooks, but it was to play games. So uh, maybe that'll change when they come out with better technology for ebooks on these tablets, better e-ink screens or something. But right now, it's just uh, just gaming and internet devices. Cool. And uh, yeah, so we're on to other news now. Sean, you want to take it away? Sure. We're talking about fracking Cylons now. The Red Hat team is developing a new <laughs> software language, and it's called the Cylon Project. Uh, led by Gavin King, is the Hibernate King. The project is aiming to replace Java in the enterprise. Some of the features that it comes along with is, is a, a Java virtual machine, I guess a virtual machine that it will run on, and a static typing. It will support high-order functions, and it will be easy to read. So Gavin King has two main reasons for creating the language. The better syntax for building user interfaces and structured data and to eliminate the old, nasty libraries in the JRE. And Mark Richards wrote this article, and the links will be provided on our website. Now, what do you guys think about the another language? Is it time? Mm. Is it time? I actually got to see Gavin King at JBoss World a few years ago. Hmm. Well, went down there for work and... Uh, got to sit in on a lot of the presentations and see kind of what they were up to back then. Uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, personally, I don't think that they need another language <laughs> that does this stuff. There's too many languages out there that run on the JVM. Uh, it just it doesn't seem like this language is going to do much more. And I'd like to see more languages that actually don't run on the JVM because... Uh, I'm a little bit worried about what Oracle is going to do to the to the JVM right. over time, and how it's going to change the landscape when the policies change. And uh, part of it's open source, but yeah. at the same time, you know, Oracle likes to make a little bit of money on what they do. So as they should. Yeah, <laughs> as everybody wants to make a little money, um, but more than Sun did when they owned Java and the JVM. Sun was more community based and didn't really know how to make money. Oracle knows how to make money. Um, so it's just another language. Uh, I wish it had some other, other features that were uh, that made it stand out. It does have the name going but for it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mike, why do they call Gavin King the Hibernate King? Could you tell by looking at him? Was it pretty obvious or no? Yeah, it's because he sleeps a lot. Polar bear. And polar bear. <laughs> He's actually a, a no-kidding polar bear. From the Arctic. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> he's he's going to drive over in his Ferrari. <laughs> exactly. Break your three screens, Brian. <laughs> he's at the four now, I think. Yeah, four screens. I'll have one left. <laughs> no, no, we love you, Gavin King. If you uh, want to stop by Brian's house, just don't break his monitors. I'm sure you guys will get along if you talk. Yep. Uh, no, he's really a smart guy. He developed the Hibernate ORM, which is the um, object mapping tool between relational databases and uh, basically object-oriented programming. So he he was he's very popular. He's um, rock star programmer. Wrote books. Uh, he kind of leads a lot of things over there at Red Hat. Nice, pretty popular guy. Cool. Uh, yeah, so I hope it works. I hope it's a great technology, and I hope it replaces Java. Uh, I just think there's a lot of a lot of work to be done, a lot of features they need to add for somebody to want to start using a new a new language. It almost has to be a new paradigm or something. It has to be beyond object oriented or something. You know, if they have functional, but that's not really catching on. Uh, somebody's got to come up with something really cool and write a research paper on it. Okay, uh, let's see, I'm up next here. Microsoft is releasing the Connect SDK for Windows. This provides uh, audio, audio processing and sound source beamforming features for Connect's four element microphone. Data, uh, sorry, depth data and raw image and audio, audio data, high performance skeletal tracking capabilities of up to two people, documentation and source code. And then there's a release date set for spring. So who's going to be using this SDK? Is it uh, people at home? Is it just game developers at big companies? Or who is this targeted for? I'm going to give it a shot and see what I can play around with. Do some experimenting with it. I think it sounds like a lot of fun. I just, I've seen some... I'm sure a lot of people have seen these YouTube videos of guys that have hacked into the Connect with their, their own device drivers and able to pull the data out and then use multiple connects to reconstruct 3D scenes from multiple angles and then rotate those scenes around. I think that's just a lot of fun. And then the possibilities become, you know, limitless really if when you have when you open it up and make it available to the general public and encourage the public to start coming brainstorming and creating new uses for the connect, at least this technology of it. What's this four element microphone? I don't know enough about the Connect, but what does that allow you to do? Do you, do you sing to different parts of the room? Or <laughs> well, <what>? It sounds <laughs> like it's part of the beam forming process. Right. The, the beam forming microphones process, it basically begins with acquiring an audio feed from two or more um, you know, directional microphones, and they're placed usually strategically apart. And then uh, they're designed, so the directional microphones are designed to have a very narrow field of range. And then the narrow field of range allows the beam-forming microphone to focus on the sounds that would originate directly from the area to where the microphone is pointed. So because of the narrow pickup field of those directional microphones, uh, they tend to record less ambient and room echo noise than a microphone with larger field of range. So really you have sort of a beam-focused microphone, and it gets rid of a lot of the, the crap that's floating around in a room. So that's how you have such high-quality audio and, and sort of like, you know, sporting arenas and other things like that. It's all about the beamform technology. Yeah, exactly. Thank, nice. Thank you, Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> well done, sir. No, I, that sounds interesting. I, okay. I know, uh, I, I've seen a project at work where they're using multiple microphones uh, to find out the source, a 3D location of 
of the, the the sound source. So I imagine you could do a little bit of that. I don't know if you have to though because they also have a I don't know things like a laser depth finder or something that uh, finds depths of each pixel. And so I don't, I'm not sure that they you would need to go that route with these, but it definitely helps out with reducing echo and, and cleaning out the the sound source. Cool. Yeah. Anything that makes for higher fidelity audio is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yep, and there's a link to the article in our show notes, uh, gamasutra.com, and uh, some of the stuff on Microsoft, we have a link for that as well. Yeah, yep. great. So I, I guess, you know, that sounds like it's pretty much wraps it up for tonight. Anybody have any last uh, words of thought or consideration for our listeners tonight, gentlemen? Come to the Twin Cities Java user group this summer and... Uh, enjoy our presentation yep no no heckling if you heckle uh we're gonna throw you out (laughs) (laughs) cool well i guess that wraps it up then everybody thanks for listening um sean thanks for joining us mike thanks for coming we're gonna try and get a guest speaker on for next time so stay tuned uh go to our facebook page at uh um, www.facebook.com and search for disgruntled rats we'll pop right up and uh, you can also go to our website at www.disgruntledrats.com for some more information on what we're doing. So uh, stay tuned, and we look forward to having you next time. Android. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Disgruntled Rats podcast. We hope you join us next time. Visit our website for more information at www.disgruntledrats.com.